Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You sound great. I sound even better. Oh. Well, I just mean volume-wise. And you do tone. have a very good voice, though. Oh, it's come a very on. comforting. Like, it's a nice voice. A comforting voice. I don't know about that. <laughs> That's not. This doesn't comfort. comfort you. You don't feel like you're being tucked into a soft bed. If you wanted to use your powers for good, you could probably do like dope guided meditations or something. Relax. Breathe through your mouth. Oh. <laughs> Be aware. <laughs> Maybe of your you can't do guided meditations. And try to picture yourself on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> oh, my God. Never mind. I Forget it. What I said. That's not relaxing? You're on the edge of a cliff looking over a deep hole. It's dark down there. You could fall forever and never die. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> or you could fall very shortly and die quickly. You never know with a deep hole. So anyway, at, at Headspace app, if you'd like a couple of new guided meditators, <laughs> we're here. We're ready. Clip this out and just send it in as my audition, both of our auditions, yeah, and come as a as a duo. Perfect. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Eli. I'm Diana. We're here in the recording studio. Yes, it's very fancy. Mm -hmm. There's a toilet. It's mm -hmm. like a prison. There's a toilet right here. There's a room. toilet, a sink. 
And that's it. Yeah, it is. Boy, this is we're recording inside our own little prison cell. We're bringing you quite a story today. You're joining us on our adventure into our first thruple. Sexy. Yeah, yeah. We're here to talk about William Marston, Elizabeth Marston, and Olive Byrne. William Marston, better known as Charles Moulton, the creator of Wonder Woman. Love it. And the two women who inspired him to do so. And really, and helped him create it too. Mm -hmm. We should not uh, minimize their input, especially Elizabeth Holloway Marston, who really had a lot to do with Wonder Woman. This is not an episode about Wonder Woman. Like, we, that's something that we've had to kind of be really cognizant of in our research and putting this episode together because it's easy to get into the whole of Wonder Woman history and feminism. And it's fascinating. There's a whole lot there to learn. I'm sure there are more comics savvy people out there talking about it, but we're really trying to narrow our focus to this particular romance between these three people. I guess among these three people is the grammatically correct way to say that? Oh, okay. Yeah, between is two. Among oh, is right. more than two. So let's get into it. Yeah. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. William Marston is... I'm going to quote our vet when she talked about our dog, Hobbs. He's a complicated guy. <laughs> it's a great note about Hobbs, by the way. Marston is someone who I think has some positive ideas and some questionable behaviors. I think you kind of have to back up and look at everything to really kind of make sense of him. Because you hear one thing and you're like, wow, this guy was ahead of his time. And then you hear something else and you're like, damn, this guy was a piece of shit. <laughs> And in, speaking of piece of shit, let's not set aside just right up front here. There are some early Wonder Woman comics that have been called out as being very racist. Mm -hmm. And it's hard not to tie that into Marston himself and kind of assume that maybe he was a big old racist. Jill Lepore wrote an article in the Smithsonian Magazine called The Surprising Origin of Wonder Woman. And she had written a book in the same year called The Secret History of Wonder Woman, where she found thousands of documents and archives and all these collections and private letters and papers of the family that nobody else had seen before. And she calls him the man of a thousand lives and a thousand lies. I think that's a pretty Poetic. good summary. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Put it on his business card. Yeah. So he was born in 1893 and he went to Harvard. In 1913, he was 20 years old and he sold a screenplay called The Thief. And this was directed by French filmmaker Alice Guy Blachet, who's amazing. She's the first woman to direct a film, mm -hmm. and she is also a woman who pioneered the acting style of just being natural on yeah. screen. Of course, when they were making films, it was coming at, right out of vaudeville, so people were in theater and people were being very big in their reactions. And she kind of realized that with a camera, you don't really need all that. So anyway, we're not going to talk about Alice Guy Blachet today, but you should look her up. She's dope. Yeah, she's awesome. Other than that, there's not really much noteworthy about Marston's early years before he met Elizabeth, Elizabeth Holloway. So let's meet Elizabeth Holloway. Yeah, um, Elizabeth was born in 1893 on the Isle of Man, but was raised in Boston. Boston University notes that in an era when few women earned higher degrees, Elizabeth received three. So she's a boss, she's an academic boss. 
She got a B.A. in psychology in 1915 at Mount Holyoke College. Wasn't Mount Holyoke where Emily Dickinson went? That's right. I'm, I'm also researching Emily Dickinson right now. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she also went there. Anyway, she was engaged to William and would have loved to attend Harvard Law School at the same time as him. Um, and she was asked in an interview about that. Elizabeth, what's your take on not going to Harvard Law School? Those dumb bunnies at Harvard wouldn't take women. So I went to Boston University. I don't know what she sounds like, Betty Boop. <laughs> I went to Boston University. Sounds like Harley Quinn. Well, Harley Quinn also got a degree in psychology. <laughs> hey, there you go. So anyway, so she went to Boston University and she pushed through school in spite of her father. She had asked him to help her with the $100 tuition. Which I want to I want to play a little game here. Oh, OK. And talk about prices. So Boston University, $100 tuition, which is the equivalent of $2,600 today. So Diana, come on down. I want you to tell us what you think the price of Boston University's School of Law is today. Remember, that price adjusted for inflation would be $2,600. Ooh, $2,000 in, in hmm, Boston University. I'm going to say $80,000. Yeah, $80,000. I'm sorry. By Price is Right rules, you actually went over, so you lose. No. But uh, your heart was in the right place because it is insanely expensive. It is $60,000 per year today. Yeah, I figured actually $2,600 wouldn't even cover the books. I don't think so. I mean, that's an increase of like a jillion percent. I don't know. I didn't go to a good college because I couldn't afford it. (laughs) Yeah, if only we'd gone to Boston University. Well, her father didn't want to pony up the $100 tuition. Um, In a Boston University publication, Who Was Wonder Woman 1 by Marguerite Lamb, she writes that according to Elizabeth's granddaughter, he said to her, As long as I have money to keep you in aprons, you can stay home with your mother. I would, well, I guess I wouldn't punch my father, but it would be (laughs) real hard. (laughs) So she had to raise the money herself. And Elizabeth, if you haven't gotten the clue yet, is a boss. So she said, I'm going to go sell cookbooks to local ladies clubs. Probably took a little while. But by the end of summer, she had raised $100 selling cookbooks. And she and William married in September just as the school year was starting. But she insisted on paying her own way because she had just done all this work. Uh, In 1918, she became one of the three women to graduate from the School of Law that year. She said that she finished the Massachusetts bar exam so fast that she had to go outside and wait for William to finish. What are you done already? What? Like it's hard? Elizabeth finishes in record time. Mm -hmm. And then William stumbles out of there eventually. Both of them take their law degrees that they just got and they join Harvard's psychology program. William goes for his doctorate. Women aren't allowed to enter the doctorate program at Harvard. So even though she kicked more ass on the exam and presumably all through school, it's like, okay, but you can't come here. You got to go to Radcliffe College, which is Harvard's female coordinate institution at the time. So they're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll educate women, but we have to do it over there. Separate but equal. It's always worked perfectly. (laughs) Yeah. So while at Harvard, William Marston's mentor was a guy named Dr. Hugo Munsterberg, who was a founder of applied psychology. His work is important in the history of psychology, although his name is not mentioned very much. But why not? Well, 
He had some interesting views for one on women. According to his biography on VeryWellMind.com, he believed that women should be able to receive a higher education, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, not bad, not bad. But graduate studies were too difficult and demanding. Mm-hmm. Also, he believed that women should not be allowed to serve on juries because they were, quote, incapable of rational deliberation. <laughs> Okay, well, I don't think I'm capable of rational deliberation about that quote. (laughs) He and I need to go outside. (laughs) One of my fists is called rational, and the other is called deliberation. (laughs) Pow, pow. You're getting them both in the face. (laughs) So uh, not only that, he also went ahead and appointed himself as the spokesperson for Germany during World War I. So anyway, a couple of black marks on his record there. You can see why he wasn't celebrated despite his valuable contributions to psychology. So in 1916, this guy, Dr. Munsterberg, is, quote, hated by more Americans than any psychologist before or since. It's not making friends out there, but he's still teaching. It's 1916. He's given a class and he's given a lecture, some, something along the lines, I'm sure, of like, And women are so crazy that, they, like, w- women be like, when I ask them, where do you want to go for dinner? They're like, oh, I don't care. But then you tell a place and they're like, oh, not there, please. And the other thing about... I'd like to pull into Speculation Station (laughs) and say that I think the students probably killed him. (laughs) A lot of your speculations involve who murdered him. I I just paint everyone as a murderer. Well, they had a damn good reason. I could see them... Like, oh, no, oh, no, he oh, died. No. Oh, geez. So sad. Oh, now no, we need this a guy. new professor who doesn't suck. <laughs> so that is why Dr. Munsterberg himself gets very little space in the psychology books, um, despite his ideas continuing to shape and contribute to modern psychology. So here's the thing, and here's where it ties back in. Munsterberg himself was very interested in lie detection and using physiological indicators to read how truthful people were being when they were speaking. And William Marston picked up his work from there, and this became kind of a focus of his. Yeah, Elizabeth actually told him that her blood pressure would change when she got mad or excited, and this became the foundation of their research on the project. According to an appendix in the National Academy Papers, Polygraph and Lie Detection, she isn't listed as a collaborator, what a surprise, but many authors reference her contributions to his deception research, and she appears in a picture taken in his polygraph library. Library. <laughs> What's a polygraph library? <laughs> Just all the lies people told, and they're like, maybe that'll be a good story later. Um, <laughs> no, she appears in a picture taken in his polygraph laboratory in the 1920s. Uh, I think it's interesting that she, <laughs> why do you think she walked up to him one day and was like, you know, whenever I'm real mad, my blood pressure goes up. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure it has nothing to do with anything he was doing. <laughs> but together they did work on this. Their work focused on systolic blood pressure readings as a means for lie detection. And he pushed really hard for polygraphs to be used in courts. This was the first really instance of that when someone was coming to the legal system and saying, hey, I can tell you when people are lying. And after World War I was going on, he went to the National Research Council, which at the time was like the R&D branch of the Council of National Defense. And he told them, you got to look into my polygraph work. We could be detecting spies and things like that. You could use this in so many ways. And they looked into it, and they basically came back and said pretty much the same thing that we say about lie detectors today. There's too many variables. 
we can't pull really reliable testimony from it. It's not solid enough for us to say it's 100% accurate. Therefore, it's really just tainting the evidence. So they played with it for a while, but it didn't really take off. According to Matthew J. Brown, a professor of philosophy at UT Dallas, Marston was a tireless popularizer of psychology. Yeah, this is a point when, like, psychology wasn't necessarily, I think, a household thing. And Marston put out articles in, like, Cosmo and Good Housekeeping and Reader's Digest. And he was trying to bring it into the home. He was trying to tell people, like, you know, hey, psychology is kind of interesting and we can use it to be happier with ourselves, right? He had this vision of psychology as, like, a progressive and liberating force as opposed to earlier psychologists that were like, let's find out what's wrong with you mm -hmm. and fix it. He was sort of like, why don't we just find out what's interesting about us and and enjoy it? I mean, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he said that uh, psychology could teach us to live, love, laugh and be happy. Oh, no. Marston originated <laughs> live, laugh, love. I don't think he's getting a cut of any of those cute signs you can buy at the Hobby Lobby. <laughs> that's why they changed it. Their I know, live, yeah, love, laugh was Marston's. And then they said, oh, mm -hmm. live, laugh, love and we can sell this at Pier 1. So it's 1921, and they both graduate. Marguerite Lamb says, quote, That year, Elizabeth punched into work and didn't punch out for 35 years. Elizabeth Holloway Marston loved working. Mm -hmm. She fucking loved it. She taught at universities. Uh, she would lecture on law and ethics. And then she worked as an editor for Encyclopedia Britannica. Smart. Yeah. She can you imagine just... editing an encyclopedia like... I guess a lot of people can because you can do Wikipedia now, right. but, <laughs> but it seems hard to me. It'd be a lot harder at the time without the internet. True. You, I mean, I mean a lot of time in libraries. You do, that's true. You yeah. have to double check and triple check all your yep. stuff because everybody's going to check you as their main source. Sure. So you got to get that shit right. It's like how um, we want to get the pronunciations right sometimes in these podcasts because I'll go look for a person's pronunciation of their name and it won't be out there. And I'm like, God, next time somebody Googles it, they're going to find our podcast and they're going to take our pronunciation as a source. No, I never thought about so, that. So, yeah, it's important. To, it's important if you're putting information out into the world to make sure it's as accurate as possible because somebody's listening to you, damn it. Right. Even if you're just some dumb comedian in your bathroom. Right. <laughs> So, meanwhile, William Marston went to teach at American University and then Tufts University, which is where he met a student by the name of Olive Byrne. Yes, but before we get to Olive, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsors. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. All right, and we're back here talking about Mary Olive Byrne. Mary Olive Byrne was born in 1904, the daughter of Ethel Byrne. Ethel was a progressive-era activist who opened the first birth control clinic in the U.S. with her sister, Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger? I know her. She's from The Thing. She's from lots of things. Yeah. Uh, So she's already got an historic background and sturdy roots in coolness, minus the eugenics. Right, yeah, there's uh, Margaret Sanger, another complicated figure in feminist history. Very true. But from the age of 2 to 10, she was raised by her grandparents. Um, Her mother had taken her and her brother there to escape from her abusive father. When their grandparents died, she was sent to an orphanage. 
1917, her mother was arrested for passing out information about birth control, and she went on a hunger strike in prison. Yeah, so in 1917, this was kind of a famous moment in sort of feminist history when Ethel Byrne and Margaret Sanger were handing out pamphlets on birth control, uh, and it was really blowing people's minds. Uh, it was kind of the reefer madness of its mm-hmm. day. You know, everyone was was fear-mongering. So, oh, this is going to lead to just you know, moral chaos Mm -hmm. and the whole world's going to fall apart. Yeah, it's just like in Mars Attacks when the aliens heard. (laughs) They just splat inside their own helmets. (laughs) People's heads bursting. Women don't have to be pregnant? Oh, no! Yeah, so Ethel's having this uh, hunger strike in prison. So Margaret Sanger went and found Olive Byrne at the orphanage and told her about her mother and her work. So when Olive was 16, she met her mother for the first time in 10 years, and she went to go live with them, and she started getting exposed to her mother and her aunt's feminist work. Her mother sent her to Tufts University to study medicine, which... Easy peasy. (laughs) It's only $100. What could it cost, Michael? $100? Olive joined the sorority Alpha Omicron Pi, and she was a statuesque woman. She was thin with black hair and blue eyes. She was tall. And in 1925, she's 21 and a senior at Tufts University, and she took a psychology class that was taught by Dr. William Marston. Yeah, she was totally into that class. Mm -hmm. She ended up becoming his research assistant. (gasps) And this is weird. She would take him into her sorority for research on some interesting subjects. For example, the notorious baby party experiment. There are articles written about this experiment. In fact, there's one called The Unethical Trials of William Marston on rampages.us. And it says that Marston conducted many experiments. Very few were without ethical infractions. The goals of these trials were in themselves very promising, but the way in which they were carried out were questionable, if not altogether indecent. Yeah, so just to give you a picture. Let's paint a picture of a baby party for you. <laughs> I mean, you can probably guess what's going to I don't know. I kind of pictured a lot of baby, like actual babies. Oh, okay. I figured it's a, it's um, a sorority involved. hazing. But yeah, it's a sorority hazing ritual at Tufts. And somehow Olive convinced the sorority to let this older guy in to watch this yeah. hazing, which also seems like a long shot. <laughs> right. I mean, who knows how much say they had in it. So for a TA to come in and tell all these freshmen and sophomores, hey, uh, my professor's going to come watch the hazing ritual tonight. <laughs> oh, okay, I guess. But they did it. He was there. Yeah. So the, the, okay. so the hazing part is that freshman members were dressed as babies and ordered to do certain things by the sophomores. And if they didn't do the command, they got a spanking. And it Sounds like a porn. I feel like this porn already exists. I, I think it's definitely the setup for several hundreds of thousands of <laughs> porn movies out there. Hundreds of thousands. It sounds fake. Like It, it sounds sound fake. It sounds fake. Yeah. But this is what they were doing. Uh, Jill Lepore says that after the party, he and Olive interviewed participants, and he noted, quote, the pleasantness of captivation emotion. Captiva- Which is the people doing the capturing, not yeah, the people being More or captured. less. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of about that relationship. Okay. There's, I think there's a lot of, in Marston's work, like what we would might call early BDSM exploration. He's really looking at the dynamic between the captor and the captive. He wrote a book called The Emotions of Normal People. And this book was basically a defense against sexual taboos, among other things. Here's a quote from it. He said, quote, Nearly all the sophomores reported excited pleasantness of captivation emotion through the party. 
The pleasantness of their captivation responses appeared to increase when they were obliged to overcome rebellious freshmen physically, or to induce them by repeated commands and added punishments to perform the actions from which the captive girls strove to escape. So yeah, I imagine he's watching a bunch of like giggling schoolgirls tease each other by being fake disciplinary. Like, teehee, you better, you better go. Teehee. I don't know what they were telling them to do. I know. What these that, tasks it would be were. good to know what they had to do. I, like they, clean something maybe yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I think like so. That. I think they were pretty innocuous like that. Like, if you sure. don't scrub out the sink. You're going to get a spanking. And then they, no, I'm not going to. And they left. And they were kind of having lighthearted fun. And Marston took this as, as basically like, it's fun when people tie other people up and make them do things. For some, yeah, sure. For some, yes. And I think that's where Marston's analysis gets a little weird, where it's a little too blanket statement, a little too much like, if this is true, then it's always true for mm-hmm. everyone. I'm thinking of the prison experiment where they made... They took that class. Oh, yeah. This was definitely after this, I think. But they took that class and made some of them guards and some of them prisoners. Right. The guards were immediately, like, super brutal and, like, terrible to their classmates or whatever. And it's just kind of funny to, like, compare these two. Yeah, because I I know it's not a prison situation, but it's funny to be like, teehee, go clean out this thing. Ha, ha, ha. And then there's, like, all these other, like, in a prison being like just abusive you know (laughs) what i mean well i think that's a good point because i think that's the difference between the two is what's the undercurrent what's the dynamic that -hmm. you're building you know in the sorority situation it was meant to be kind of silly i think i mean there's a baby party like how silly is that as a setup as opposed to this prison experiment where you are in charge of these bad people and you're their disciplinarians in in a very in a much more serious way that's true so that would that's, make a difference to the response for sure. Yeah, I almost feel like somebody should tell Marston about the prison experiment and be like, yeah, not always. Yeah. This is not always fun. Sometimes it brings out your worst qualities. But I, I think you're right, and it really depends on the power dynamic. Um, at, as it's true in, in BDSM, I think, the power dynamic is everything. The right. trust, the level of trust. Nor Berlatsky from The Atlantic, he wrote a lot about... Marston and Wonder Woman. Really interesting stuff. And and he writes in this one blog about the difference between Marston's view of sexual taboo versus Freud's. And I think this is kind of goes to what we were saying. Uh, Berlatsky says, quote, my general take on Freud is that he thinks everyone is abnormal. So it's normal to be unhealthy and neurotic in the sense that it's typical, but not in the sense that it's healthy. The Oedipus complex is something to be overcome, ideally, or worked through. Whereas Marston seems to believe that everyone's abnormal kinks are healthy and normal, more or less, especially women's. So that Marston is saying, look, if you want to be tied up and have fun with it, that's good. That's great. You should celebrate that and not you should find the reason for that. You should talk about your parents and find out why that is. And and then stop you'll stop. It. Yeah. And stop liking it, more importantly. Right. But back to our romance, William and Olive bonded over class and these experiments and more. And of course, they end up falling in love. Yeah, big ethical cringe face because, of course, he's her professor and her boss. Um, He's a little bit older than her. Of course, she's not underage or anything like that. And we don't know if they were sleeping together while he was still in this position. We we really don't know if their sexual relationship started before, after he was her supervisor or teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can only speculate, but well, another big ethical cringe is that, according to Jill Lepore's book, he presented his wife Elizabeth with an ultimatum. Either Olive comes to live with the two of us, or you and I are done. 
Yeah. And Elizabeth apparently walked out the door and walked without stopping for six hours. Elizabeth had energy. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> she had energy. I wish I had some of that. I'll have whatever Elizabeth Holloway Marston's having. <laughs> she did, man. She could move. Really, this is this is the first account of that, although Laporte is the person who got to go through all these old family letters and stuff. So if anybody knows, it's her. Olive and Elizabeth remained close for the rest of their lives. So it doesn't seem like they were living in a lifestyle against their will, but perhaps the origins of that lifestyle may have been highly questionable, if not downright abusive, right? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth was kind of put in a really difficult situation because she was already fighting really hard against this oppressive system. She'd already made such great strides. I mean, she was working her ass off. And part of that is because of her relationship with William, who was felt the same way. He was open to women's liberation. He it's liked that true. she not, worked. Not every husband would have been cool with her going out and getting multiple degrees and working right. every day and everything. So that's a, that's very true. But that in and of itself kind of became a trap because now right. she's stuck with him if she wants to live that lifestyle. It's not yeah. his trap, but it's just this like social trap. It's like this guy said, I have to take this other woman into my home. And if I say no, I can say no to basically everything in my life probably. She also did really want children. Mm -hmm. So met with that ultimatum, I, you can see why she just sort of had to say yes. But then it's very unclear as to how happy she was in this. Lepore writes that before Olive even came along, they actually did have another polyamorous relationship with another woman named Marjorie Huntley. And Marjorie Huntley stayed in their lives and would come and go throughout their lives for years, decades to come, really. But they did live together. And when asked about their relationship... They they would lie. They had to say to the census takers that Olive was Elizabeth's widowed sister-in-law or they told William's mother that she was their widowed housekeeper. And during the years that they lived together, instead of a wedding ring, Olive wore large metal bracelets. Yeah, it seems from all accounts like they three of them were very happy together. Uh, Lepore describes a sex cult in 1925 to 1926, which usually doesn't end well, I feel. A uh -huh. sex cult usually <laughs> it's a tragic story. <laughs> so they held a sex cult anyway that they held at Marston's aunt's house. Can you imagine asking your aunt or my oh, aunt? Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, can we get the house for a weekend? I promise I'll change the sheets. Oh. Gross. You don't have any cameras, do you? If you do, that's great. That's great. Just, I'd love to be I'd able to watch to get them. the footage. <laughs> do you mind if I install a mirror on the ceiling? It's for a good reason, I promise. Yeah. Huntley was there, too, their previous uh, polyamorous partner. Mm -hmm. From The Atlantic, quote, Participants celebrated female sexual power, dominance, submission, and love by forming love units consisting of multiple partners, including love girls, who were basically nudists. And they would get into deep into conversation at these meetings about Margaret Sanger and her work, which William found fascinating, which I love that they had a sex cult that would like was like an intellectual yeah. salon as well. well. It reminds me of like uh, what, what Lord Byron, was it? Yeah. You know, they get together to philosophize and just mm -hmm. talk about psychology. They were all super into psychology, of course. Right. And they just get together and hang out. And, you know, Olive Byrne, of course, has this deep connection to Margaret Sanger and Ethel Byrne and the, fem the strong feminist movements of the day. And that's William is surrounded by women who are very progressive and forward thinking. And I think that became the foundation for a lot of his thinking. See, men, if you let smart women into your life, you'll really improve your, your quality life. of thinking. I mean, uh, that's that's 
been true for a long time. And maybe your sex life. (laughs) And yes, if you let multiple women into your life, you might improve your sex life. (laughs) But you don't expect it. I mean, I know I was about to say, I don't think that uh, you should expect all the smart women you let into your life (laughs) to just suddenly decide to fuck you and each other at the same time. But I will say... That if you have smart women in your life, you become a type of gentleman who will attract sexy, awesome ladies. So even if they don't fuck more than one person, they will fuck you real well. (laughs) That's a guarantee. I let all these smart women into my life and none of them are having sex with me. (laughs) What am I doing wrong? Hmm, I wonder why. So anyway, so William had a deep interest in Margaret Sanger and he shared a belief with her that women were purer and better than men. And that their loving nature made them better leaders naturally, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think has some some truth to it. I think we can still agree to that today. That in a lot of instances we can see women being that better women leaders better. than men and being more empathetic and things like that. That's true, especially if you look at world leaders, particularly during the pandemic and like what countries did better. It was noted several times yeah. that they had yeah. women leaders. Coincidence? No. I think not. No, I'm just kidding. Well, it's also a viewpoint that I think the conclusion matches modern feminist beliefs. But like Berlatsky wrote in The Atlantic, that view sits very uncomfortably with the current feminist movement, which often sees discussions of feminine purity as an excuse to restrict what women are allowed to do. I took that to mean like he's thinking about uh, high priestesses or something. Where it's, ah, women, you're so much better and elevated and superior to men. So go... Live, close yourself off in that temple and and take a vow of celibacy for 30 years. That's the extreme. Yeah. Or of even what that the might like, oh, women are so delicate and pure and innocent uh-huh. that working or having any any life outside of a home and Joining family is like too like much. That. Yeah, yeah too, too much for them. More of a gilded cage, I guess, but still a cage. So, you know, you can see that William had some strong feminist undercurrents in his belief. But maybe the practice was a little misplaced. You can kind of look at this different ways. I think you can say, oh, here was a guy who really believed that women should have the freedom to work as much as they want and educate themselves. And I want to support them in their beliefs. And I'm out there writing psychology and saying, like, y'all, women are better than men, honestly. Mm -hmm. But like Katha Pollitt writes in The Atlantic, Marston had a sweet thing going. Two remarkably smart, adoring women to cater to his every need, each apparently believing she'd landed in feminist heaven. So there's that right. kind of angle to it. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, maybe, but also he was also kind of. I get to fuck little. both of you. One of you stays home and takes care of our kids while the two of us make money that we can spend. Well, and aren't you so happy? Beyond that, one of us can stay home and take care of the kids. The other one can have a stable, high-paying career, and Mm -hmm. I can bounce around from thing to thing, sometimes totally failing, and Mm. not really have to worry about it. Because Elizabeth held a much more steady job than he did. And he was was always getting into trouble. People were always, like, really iffy about his beliefs and, and viewpoints. As much as he popularized psychology in the home, he also kind of depopularized himself over the years too. He really kept pushing for this lie detector thing and no one was getting on board with that. He developed the DISC system, which is a personality assessment system. And this is pretty much, it's been quoted as being like the astrology of psychology today. Mm. There, It's not talked about. So similar to Munsterberg, I feel like he had some valuable contributions, but it's not like people are not worshiping his psychology. In 1928, at the age of 35, Elizabeth had her first child, Pete, 
and then later birthed a daughter named Olive Ann. And she continued working even after childbirth, which was pretty unheard of at that time. That was due in part to the fact that Olive wanted to stay home and take care of the children. Olive and William had two of their own. So they have four kids in all. Yeah, Elizabeth was working, Olive raised the kids, and William was, like we said, doing his kind of random stuff out there. He published a bunch of articles. He had books and journals and moved more into feminism and progressivism, you know, of the time. But he did get very into pop culture. I mean, he wrote that screenplay when he was 20, sold right. that. And now he was getting into the movie system a little bit more. He wrote a book about how to write screenplays that were, quote, healthy and appealing. And he went on to work as a consultant for Universal Pictures and DC Comics. So in steps Maxwell Gaines, the man who popularized comic books in 1933. Mm -hmm. But comics were kind of nationally disrespected, I guess, at that time. Um, There's a Chicago Daily News article in 1940 that called them a national disgrace and said 10 million copies of these sex horror serials are sold every month and called for them to be banned. I mean, it sounds like the free market to me. (laughs) It's like the reefer madness thing all over again. It's like Mm -hmm. birth control being available. Oh, it's going to menace to society. And now Mm -hmm. it's comic books. Oh, they're a menace to society. It's just whatever people are opening their minds to at the time. Somebody else is going to say, hey, now, I like the way I like things the way they are. The kids these days. So... In 1940, Maxwell Gaines hires William Marston as a consultant. Lepore writes that if Gaines had known about Marston's unconventional lifestyle, he probably wouldn't have called him. They kept their thruple a secret, but Gaines was specifically looking to avoid controversy and not invite it. But he'd heard about Marston in an interview in Family Circle magazine by an interviewer named Olive Richard. She had interviewed him several times, and he said that comics had a lot of educational potential. She said in the interview, well, hey, comic books are full of torture and kidnapping and other cruel business. But Marston replied, unfortunately, that is true. But when a lovely heroine is bound to the stake, comics readers are sure that the rescue will arrive in the nick of time. The reader's wish is to save the girl, not see her suffer. Yeah, and if you're like me and are like, wow, there's a lot of olives in this story. What a popular (laughs) name. Turns out it was Olive. Olive Byrne was working for Family Circle magazine and she interviewed Marston under the pseudonym Olive Richard. So <laughs> there's nothing like a sympathetic interviewer. You know what I mean? Man, and it was just <laughs> free publicity for Marston. It just true. He's like, I, I know just the gal for this job. <laughs> but anyway, Gaines sees that interview and he's like, yes, he says, yes, this is the guy I want to push back against the criticism and bring some damn legitimacy to comics. And, and bring me some pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> well, look, World War II is ramping up. Comics heroes are coming out of the ass of America. There's just... Wow. <laughs> really, oh this God. is the birth of many of the heroes we know today. Superman and Batman had just popped up a year earlier. Captain America was in development. Green Lantern was fresh on the page. You know, all these, all these heroes. And Marston looked at what they had and he said... Yeah, this is great. He he did like Superman's altruism, but he thought that these guys were too tough and brutal. And so much of what was happening was still based on fear and vengeance. So when he talks to Gaines, he says, we need a hero that is about love and optimism and fighting for truth. And this is all coming out of, I think, his history. I mean, now that we know him and Elizabeth and Olive better, we can sort of see why this would be the direction that Marston would want to go in with comics. And Marguerite Lamb writes that he took the idea home to Elizabeth and she said, 
Fine, but make her a woman. It was a damn fine idea, ma'am. In 1941, Wonder Woman made her debut in All-Star Comics. But let's just take a little quick break and be right back after this. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Marston wrote under the pen name of Charles Moulton, uh, maybe because comics had this terrible reputation in in the nation, yeah, as being this utter disgrace or whatever. And so he kind of was like, I don't want my own name attached to this in case it doesn't go well. Yeah, that was kind of the the idea that was put out there. But I thought, well, his own reputation was kind of failing. So I thought maybe mm-hmm. he thought it was better for Wonder Woman if he didn't put his own name on it. It's like this guy whose reputation sucks working on a in a product that reputation sucks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So anyway, he wrote under the name Charles Moulton. Yeah, that was his middle name was Moulton and Maxwell Gaines' middle name was Charles. So it was that simple. Charles Moulton. And it, like we said, there is a whole history of Wonder Woman here that is fascinating and brilliant. And we could probably spend another two hours talking on it on ourselves. But specifically what we want to look at is their relationship and how it fed into Wonder Woman and then how that sort of fed back into them. And you can kind of see that like we said, this loving, non-conforming, sort of female-empowered ideology became the foundation for this comic. Elizabeth and Olive together were the ideological inspiration for Wonder Woman. And then physically, she was tall, thin, black-haired, blue-eyed, and wore large metal bracelets. Maybe sound familiar? Hey, Mm. that sounds a lot like Olive. Ding, ding, you figured it out. I did it. (laughs) Uh, And... Then the lasso of truth. We all know Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. She ropes you with that and you are compelled to speak the truth of whatever she asks you. And of course, that came straight from the lie detection work that he and Elizabeth were doing. Mm -hmm. And Wonder Woman is what? Diana Prince is a liberated woman in Boston with a strong mind for business who's fought for equality through love. I mean, you couldn't create a more perfect mashup of his relationship with Elizabeth and Olive. Right. And like all their best qualities together in this one character. Yep. In an interview, Marston said, not even girls want to be girls so long as our feminine archetype lacks force, strength, and power. Not wanting to be girls, they don't want to be tender, submissive, peace-loving as good women are. Women's strong qualities have become despised because of their weakness. The obvious remedy is to create a feminine character with all the strength of Superman plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman. Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who, I believe, should rule the world. So, a real mixed bag. I mean... All bundled up in one quote there. Okay, so you think 
Good women are tender, submissive, and peace-loving, uh-huh. but also should have all the strength of Superman. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a lot to ask. Yeah, he brought bondage very heavily into the comic. Lepore writes in her book, in episode after episode, Wonder Woman is chained, bound, gagged, lassoed, tied, fettered, and manacled. She cites a panel in this comic where I think some villain has gotten Wonder Woman. Oh, I've got you now, Wonder Woman, all chained and tied. Get away if you can. <laughs> Great girdle of Aphrodite, am I tired of being tied up? <laughs> That's a direct quote. I need to start saying Great Girdle of Aphrodite. They say that Wonder Woman, all of her curses were women gods too. So she would th- say things like, Holy Aphrodite, or Suffering Sappho. Suffering Sappho. That's one you should start incorporating. <laughs> That's I'm, I'm definitely, I'm going to be like, Suffering Sappho, this traffic. <laughs> so Labor describes the insane detail that Marston went into when he was telling his artists how Wonder Woman was going to be tied up in certain panels. It's literally just like, this chain needs to be three inches thick and wrapped around her left wrist and then under her right wrist and then over the top in between them with her arms tied close to her breast and, you know, this side of the chain hanging down on her right and this length of chain. Just insane detail. At the end of this detailed description, he writes, this whole panel will lose its point and spoil the story unless these chains are drawn exactly as described here. Emphasis mine. Um, but it does just this, sounds very petulant. Yeah. Does this at all call up to mind like a film director who's like, no, the nudity is really important to the story. <laughs> yeah, I promise. Right. It does have that energy to it. And it was not without criticism at the time. Marston replied that, look, no one's actually whipped or tortured and says, quote, my whole strip is aimed at drawing the distinction in the minds of children and adults between love bonds and male bonds of cruelty and destruction between submitting to a loving superior or deity and submitting to people like the Nazis, which the New York Times described as psychological mush. So, I mean, I don't know. I think there's something buried in there. Um, Well, I think there's something there about just trying to describe the difference between submission that is in a place of trust Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and coming from a a place of just trusting your captor and knowing that you're safe. Yeah. I mean, that makes a huge difference to like somebody put you in a cage to harm you specifically or to to dominate you, you know, like to colonize you, to crush you or whatever, which is what he's kind of talking about. Male bonds of cruelty and destruction. Right. I think so. Maybe there's something there, too, where he's just trying to distinguish like there's not all submission is cruel and not all domination is cruel. It really depends on who's doing it and what their relationship is. Like, all of that nuance really makes a difference instead of this, like, blanket. I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, I guess, but I'm, I'm, spe- I'm speculating. Yeah, and it does seem like that's, again, like, we talk about his sort of blinders and his sort of blanket statements. Mm-hmm. Like, is he just applying this to, well, you know, it, we do it in the bedroom, therefore women must like it all over. You know, whenever right. you're tied up, it's, it can be good. Or assuming that every woman would enjoy that in the bedroom. Right, you right, know, Which right. is not true, but... But he, but he does say in that quote that he's trying to draw the distinction for people. Right. Between those two, like you said, like between a trusting situation or Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, Marston had written on the value of taking pleasure in submission. Like, for example, the Golden Lasso he saw as a tool of liberation. If you're submitting to the truth, that meant freedom. He said, quote, only when the control of self by others 
is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships, can we hope for a stable, peaceful human society. Giving to others, being controlled by them, submitting to other people cannot possibly be enjoyable without a strong erotic element. So I don't know if he's saying this is only fun in the bedroom or if you make it sexy, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you make it sexy, you could do anything you want. I know somebody broke into your house and tied you up, but uh, why don't you make it sexy? And then they're not really controlling you. Right. I don't know. That might that's that's a stretch, I think. But it, it anyway, it does bring up the question, is this something they did at home? Like did they right. enjoy like a bondage relationship at home? Yeah. Like, sexy stuff at home. But in a rare peek into the Marston's personal life from one of their children, it was a uh, William and Olive's son, Bern Holloway Marston said to Lepore in an interview that his father only meant this metaphorically, and he said I never saw anything like that in our house. He didn't tie the ladies up to the bedpost. He'd never have gotten away with it. (laughs) Which, (laughs) there's a lot there, too, because of like, but hang on, let me go into speculation station. First of all, what child knows what their parents get up to in the bedroom? Like, could say definitively. Right. Nah, they didn't get into that. How much graphic detail are you getting from your mom and dad about... How they like to do it. I I would think you'd you'd even if you did learn that, your brain would just block it out forever. <laughs> and second of all, I think, you know, that's kind of an uneducated stance on BDSM because it sounds like he's saying Olive and Elizabeth were so tough and independent and strong, they never would have let him tie them up in the bedroom. But I think as we know now, if you know anything about BDSM, that a lot of strong, powerful people, men and women, then like to be tied up in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but you kind of see patterns in that of like people who are very sturdy and independent in their day-to-day life like to kind of let it all go and submit. So I don't know how much we can take his word for it, but we can only take his word for it because we don't know what was going on in that bedroom either. We don't have any other words to take. And then, in fact, on that same note, Marston actually wrote in a letter to Maxwell Gaines, The Secret of Women's Allure. Everybody get ready here. Here comes The Secret of Women's Allure. Here we go. (laughs) From Marston's lips to your ears. The secret of women's allure is that women enjoy submission and being bound. So yes. Only women enjoy that. All women. Only women. Women. Definitive (laughs) statement. Period. I know women. I'm around several. (laughs) I've had sex with three of them and they all liked it. (laughs) Some of my best friends are women, so I think I know them all by now. (laughs) But that also does kind of imply that, I mean, if he thought that, then they probably did like it, right? I mean, that's his lived experience is whatever Elizabeth and Olive would have been into. True. Although they did have that sex cult with the love girls. Right, stuff, right, so right. Maybe some of them liked it. Right. So so in any case, his his sexual experience is probably heavily based around mm-hmm. tying up, submitting, things like that. Otherwise, I can't imagine he would. And he liked it. He said it was, this was alluring yeah. of you that you like me to tie you up. and yeah. I don't think he would say that without the experience behind it. If if Elizabeth and Olive were like, no, you can't fucking tie us up, then he probably wouldn't say the secret of women's lure is that they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I think I think he at least would be like, well, they they don't like it. You know, women don't like being tied up. I've tried. That's a good point. I Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> so I, I feel like that just kind of gives credence to the idea that they, they probably did. Well, and and like we mentioned earlier, there is some stark racism in the early Wonder Woman comics. 
Look up Wonder Woman issue number 19 if you want to hear about it. If you, you for some don't. reason <laughs> want to read that. It's bad. Just trust us on this one. Not a collector's item. Uh, it's not brought up in much of the discourse about him. Yeah, about specifically Marston, it doesn't really come up that much. Yeah, but they kind of focus more on his feminism and don't really get into his racism because I don't I think it wasn't very overt and out there. Right. But Noah Berladsky did write on Medium in an essay called The Enduring Racism of Wonder Woman that for Marston, there's an uncomfortable sense in which Wonder Woman's whiteness was central to rather than incidental to her feminism. The powerful, transformative femininity of love leaders was tied to the moral power of white women in particular. For Marston, a black Amazon would not be possible. So not an intersectional feminist by no, any means. No, and this um, is... Which, by the way, is the only right way to do it, in my opinion. 100% necessary. Opinion nothing. That's objective I fact. think that's true. Yeah. I think you could say, objectively, if you're not talking about all women... Trans women, cis women, white women, women of color, then you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Um, So William Marston, not doing it right. (laughs) That's our our podcast. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But coming back to the romance, you had Olive raising all four children at home. Interesting. I thought I liked that um, Elizabeth and Olive each named one of their kids after the other. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth had to get their own names into the mix. Right. Holloway and... Like their own actual surnames. Olive was going by the name Olive Richard at home. Uh, She had dropped Byrne as her surname in public, I guess. And so she named her son Byrne Holloway Marston. And Elizabeth named her daughter Olive Ann Marston. But Olive did hide from even her own children that William was their father. She told them their father was a man named William Richard, who died shortly after they were born. They didn't learn their father's true identity until 1963. Do you think that they wondered, though? You know, speculation station. Yeah, come on. Surely at some point they thought, boy, I grew up in a house. Or like looked in the mirror and they were like, I don't know. My nose is the same. I don't know. (laughs) Like we both have the same ears or something. Not a situation I've been in, but I can't imagine that they didn't at least at some point be like, yeah, but he's our dad, right? Yeah, William Richard. Sure, they just happen to have the same first name. 1963, they're like 30 years old or something, and she sits down and is like, I need to tell you the true identity of your father. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's William, William Marston, Marston right? right? Yeah. Okay, great. Can we go out for ice cream or something? <laughs> I guess I'm 30, but I still like that. <laughs> I don't know. It might have blown their minds. I mean, that would be a weird thing to learn at any age, I guess. Yeah. Like, your father is not who you thought it was. Yeah. And Elizabeth, despite the Great Depression, which I don't know if you guys heard, was a tough time. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Great Depression in our new segment, The Great Depression. Actually hard. <laughs> but she landed a bomb-ass job in 1933, not the year for bomb-ass jobs. She was the assistant to the chief executive at Metropolitan Life Insurance, and she held that position until she was 65 years old. I mean, she should have been the chief executive at Metropolitan Life Insurance, but let us skate right over that. (laughs) It was 1933, so let it go. (laughs) She, like we said, had her first child at the age of 35 and continued to work even after kids were born. Both of those things, totally revolutionary acts at the time. Mm -hmm. Nobody was having kids like they weren't waiting. Women weren't waiting until 35 to have kids in the 30s. And then they weren't continuing to work once they did have children. 
But it kind of goes back into that idea that this probably wouldn't have worked without them as a thruple. You know, if Olive hadn't been home to raise the kids while they were off both working a lot, mm-hmm. you know, one of them would have had to have stepped back. And you know, we can only imagine it might have been Elizabeth. I will throw out there that in the spirit of our intersectional feminist feminist conversation. Oh, true. That this is, again, mostly white women, uh, I think, did not work outside of the home once they had kids. I've definitely read that women of color did not have the option to stay home as much, uh, uh, you know. So that's just something to say there. Just a heads up. Yeah, that's very true. (laughs) It's very unusual for white people to be doing it like this. And want to add in, too, that it's not like it's impossible for, you know, a husband and wife to both work full time and not raise four kids. But it seems like that challenge in 1933 and that sort of like social standard would have made that really difficult to do. Right. I mean, even now you have women working where everyone's like, don't you miss your kids? Where are your kids right now? Or whatever. And it's like, I don't know. I left them in the street somewhere. Don't worry (laughs) about it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) But yeah, at the time it would have been even more difficult, I'm sure, than now to have that conversation where people are like, literally, you're morally obligated, you know, like your moral standing, you're like a bad person. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Now, William retained complete control of Wonder Woman at DC Comics from its beginning in 1941 until his death in 1947. He died fairly suddenly of skin cancer. They had an income still coming in from Wonder Woman, although Wonder Woman did begin to decline after his death. Some reviews in the 50s said, you know, this comic doesn't have anything to say anymore now that its original creator and artist has died. So Elizabeth's career kept them afloat. Elizabeth and Olive continued to live together for the rest of their lives. Uh, We don't know much about what that life was like. Mm -hmm. Psychology Today writes that we really don't know the intimate nature of Elizabeth and Olive's relationship. Pretty tasteless, I guess, to ask two women if they were having (laughs) sex. I don't know. But in 2004, Les Daniels in Wonder Woman, The Complete History, popularized the idea that their relationship was truly a thruple. Mm -hmm. But it's unclear where that idea comes from. That author of the Psychology Today article had interviewed the kids a few times in the past, and he actually questioned the director of the movie. There's a movie called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women that definitely depicts their relationship as sexual, Elizabeth and Olive's. And he asked at a panel about that. He said, well, you know, you kind of say this movie is based on a true story. And you say that these two women were having sex, but how do you know that? And the director kind of dodged it a little bit and said, you know, well, this is they're they're really nobody really knows. So this is sort of, you know, any any biographical story, you're interpreting some things, and this is how I chose to interpret it. And that director's a woman as well, for what it's worth. And he says that after that question, immediately after that question, a moderator started hearing the questions before anyone was allowed to ask them. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, something they they thought was a little sensitive, too. Like no hardballs at the conventions. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Later in life, William and Elizabeth's son, Pete, said that the adults had their part of the house. The kids had their part and they didn't know what happened over there, (laughs) 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 which I love. They had their side of the house. I'm picturing like the crayon thing where they just went through the whole house, <laughs> put a big line. You clean <laughs> yeah. that part. I'll clean this part. Mm-hmm. Don't cross this line after <laughs> 6 p.m., kids. And they and he would say, who cares? Why would you ask me that? Which is a good, I mean, yeah. true. why would you ask you, the children? How Again, why would you ask? You go to a grown adult and say, or I mean, or a young kid, but you go to anyone and you say, hey, 
what was the sexual relationship of your two mothers? Like, oh, my God, dude, fuck off. I don't know. And I don't care. Why do you? Anyway, Elizabeth's career put all four of their children through college. Imagine four children on a single income. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a time. While she was supporting Olive, too. So That's it was right. Like she's supported five, Olive. Yeah, five people. Plus herself. Olive died in 1990 at the age of 86. Um, they had been living together in an apartment in Tampa. And at this point, they lived together for 64 years. Wow. And Lepore writes that while Olive was in the hospital, Elizabeth fell and broke her hip and was admitted to the same hospital in a separate room. And when in her hospital bed, she was told that Olive had died and Elizabeth sang a poem by Tennyson. Sunset and the evening star and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. So nice. It really is. And it really makes me think that they that they did have a romantic relationship together. Elizabeth was somewhere around 50 when William died and Olive was, you know, so somewhere around 40. And either one of them certainly could have ventured out on their own. They, they obviously had an established family unit. So that may have been enough for them, you know, at that point to just say, let's just stick it out together. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they had a romantic relationship. But it, it feels like they did to me. I don't know. I think we have a better understanding, even if it wasn't romantic. You know what I mean? Their friendship was clearly really important to them. And they liked the way their life was organized. And maybe they just couldn't find a dude that was as open-minded as William about how they wanted to lead their lives. You know, and at at some point you have your shit set up. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that's why people find it difficult to date, like, after they've been divorced or something later on in or widowed or something later on in life right is that they're like i'm just so in my habits and i'm very used to a person who already knows my habits yeah. and what i like and don't like and it's really hard to incorporate a new person into that right but i kind of agree like just this poem and stuff is really beautiful and it i don't know it speaks to to a real heartrending i guess i think they lived a long time together being probably the only two people who fully understood each other Mm-hmm. who really appreciated each other's experience and had similar opinions about things at a at a time. I mean, they lived from the late 1800s, early 1900s until the, the, the 80s, 90s. and 90s. Yeah. So they saw it all. And at their formative years, they were ahead of the game. And then they got to see the world sort of catch up to them, probably reevaluate their own beliefs and experiences. And who else could they turn to in that time? Who else could understand what they had been through in terms of this sense of liberation and this sense of non-conventional relationship? You know, who else would have understood that? Right. And then even if, you know, you've lived however long, however many decades in this type of relationship, how hard to share that information with somebody yeah. who may yeah. or may not agree right. with you. You know, it's like a secret that you might have from a new partner or something right. where you're like, I I would love to tell you about all the things I've done and seen, but you might censure me for that and kind of be like, oh, you're a weird, promiscuous lady who had yeah. a sex cult in her house and yeah. has this other woman raising her children and works all the time and just stuff like that. It might be hard, again, just hard to incorporate another person into that. Yeah. A thruple is a thruple. <laughs> right. It's not just three random people. It's yeah. It's like a couple. It's got its own life. Its own yeah. unit has its own life. So to me, I I just think that the in, at the end of the story, the the central romance here is kind of theirs. I mean, whether it was sexual or not, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that they're 
their connection and their feelings together and their the way they sort of built each other up. Yeah. You know, not only was the foundation for Wonder Woman and clearly had a heavy influence on the feminist movement at a very crucial time. Um, but just on a personal level, yeah, it became like a really important, really significant thing. And it's nice, too, that we're talking about two feminists, one who did not want to stay home with kids and mm-hmm. one who did. Yeah. They're both equally feminist. Yeah. And their work and their life and what they wanted out of life is just as feminist as the other ones. Do right. you know what I mean? Right. And right. I like that there's, at least in our research, no evidence that one was put above the other or as more powerful as the other or more yeah. feminine as the other. You know yeah. what I mean? It was just like, look at these two women and everything they're capable of doing. Yeah. And then three years later, in 1993, Elizabeth Holloway Marston died one month after her 100th birthday. She's a Wonder Woman. Total boss. I mean, she is like girl crush for me now. History, historic girl crush. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's William. Yep. Just a, like I said, just a bag of, huh? Like, <laughs> a bag of, huh? Just all over the place. Again, you, you, you pull out one sentence from his life and you're like, wow. What a cool guy. And then you look at the next sentence and you're like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Right. He's, he is a he is a mess. To some degree, you want to say, hey, hey, he's he was trying a lot harder than than most other men in his era for that. Good for you. Yeah, you might have laid the foundation for men's involvement in the feminist movement. You know, he might have been integral to that. The early days of that. But man. <laughs> It's really questionable, a lot of his behaviors, especially if he was a racist, then fuck it. Yeah, right. We got a hard time with that. But there's a lot of discourse on Wonder Woman and feminism and William Marston that really kind of goes back to that feminism is an ever-changing set of ideological values. It's constantly growing for the better. And it's really hard to look at the context of feminism back in the day through today's eyes because we know so much more than they did because of what they did. Right. It's a good time to note that a progressive movement progresses. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it changes over time. And so yeah. as I don't like to say, well, they're a product of their time because it excuses a lot of heinous yeah. behavior that even in their time, a lot of people were already saying no. You know, if you're talking yep. about slavery or something like people yep. in the time were also like, this is fucked up. Yeah. But you do have to make some concessions for predominant thinking and like the mis- the internal misogyny that some women feel where mm-hmm. you know they'll be like oh i'm 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 feminist so i can't be home with the kids even right. if that's what i really want i need to show that that's not what i i'm a strong powerful woman and so i'm going out you know what i mean right so anyway and of course he would also have his own just frames just a framework right. you know right. just a lens through which he's seeing things and he's seeing it through a culture that is pretty different from now, from today, even though it was America. Yeah. You know, it was still a very, a, a different time. So it was like as open-minded as he might have could have been at that time. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. You got to imagine that everyone probably in his life, everything he was ever taught mm-hmm. was pretty antithetical to what he was saying in terms of women's liberation and things like that. Yeah. He was already pushing back against something. So there's, I, I, I guess... I feel like there's some credit there, but it's, you know, everyone's complicated. Right. Nobody's all good or bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe this guy was more bad than good, but uh, we got Wonder Woman. Yeah, we did get Wonder Woman. And thank the Lord for that. She's a dope hero. 
What a thruple. What a thruple indeed. <laughs> if you want to be a thruple, hey, send us an email. It's romance at iheartmedia.com. Yep. And we're also on the socials. It's at Radic Romance. And I'm at Dynamite Boom. I'm at Oh Great It's Eli. And thanks so much for listening to this story about Wonder Woman and the people who created her. Yeah, let us know what you think. And go read about Wonder Woman's history, because that is a whole other subject. And it's Yeah, just go read Wonder Woman. Yeah. There's some great runs of her stories. There are. All right, we're going back to the mascara. Bye, Can't everybody. Wait. <laughs> so long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.